I always say that if you listen to the podcast feed, you get special bonus material that shows up nowhere else. And so this is an interview with my friend, Dr. Brian Keating. Now, I've interviewed Brian several times in the past on my channels, and I told him, like, this is the last time until you interview me. And uh, true to his word, he had me on his podcast. And so if you want to hear my work as a journalist, understand sort of my philosophy, how I balance between clickbait and trying to be honest in terms of science, I think you'll probably enjoy this interview and give you a good sense of just how Universe Today operates. All right, here's the interview. Everybody, it is a treat. I am talking to a legend in this field. This is Fraser Kane. His inaugural appearance on my channel, although he, yeah. he's hosted me so many times. It's I, I really feel guilty, Fraser. I mean, I, I'm filled with well, guilt all the time, but but more so today. Thank you for coming. Well, on. that's good. I mean, well, I was pretty implicit about it last time. I'm like, this is the last time I interview you until you interview me. And then... The, then we're square and we can continue on with this natural cycle that we have together. <laughs> we had this uh, calendar battle where we send each other. Links. Exactly. I send yeah. you a Zoom invite. No, I send you a Zoom. <laughs> yeah. F that. Tell me when your calendar's open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ultimate flex yeah. is uh, yeah. I will have my assistant use her flip phone or his flip phone to <laughs> set up an interview with you. Yeah. Oh, you don't oh. have an assistant. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, the sorry, universe today yeah. empire is, 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 uh, being stronger every day. Anyway, Fraser, this is such a treat. I want to get into so many things with you. I want to talk about your yeah. story. I want to talk about what excites you the most about our universe. I want to talk about your phenomenal career and your writing, uh, which inspires me and millions around the world. Uh, and, and you're so prolific. It kind of, uh, you know, it puts Hemingway to shame. And uh, I really want to use this to encourage you to, you know, to turn your interviews and everything that you do into a book that's uh, not many years uh, in the past, but a new book. And then I can have you back mm -hmm. on to do right. a segment that I call judging books by their covers. We'll hold up. So is that, is that it? That's the real, like, like I can't come back on until I've written another book. That's, that's your, you, that's your you, gateway you that it, I have to pass through. Ways. Yeah. That uh, makes but, sense. No, but seriously, you do so much cool stuff and, and like partially, you know, I've been looking forward to this for weeks since I was on your show and that episode, I think it was your most popular episode that whole day. Uh, it was incredible. It got 10,000 views within the first three months. It's just that, yeah. I, I'm yeah, a, definitely one of the more successful interviews that I've done was the conversation with you. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, was, I was joking. I was saying it was the most popular video of your video that particular day only. Uh, you've, <laughs> you've had uh, so many incredible interviews. No, no, no. It was one of the most successful interviews that I've done. Oh, well, I, so, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, but after the interview, after we turned off the mics, we did a BTS, you know, kind of thing where you're talking and... You give me some life advice, and I, I want to turn to that later mm. about where you see things. But but I want to get to know you and have my my you know sure. rel, my my audience is only the square root of your audience, but they're the best in the universe, of course. Uh, but I want to I want to start with your origin story. What got you into astronomy? What brought you to where you are today, up there in the Great White North, or mm -hmm. soon to be White North, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, I've always been into astronomy as long as I can remember. Like I was, I 
I had a copy of Our Universe, the Time Life book. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. That I would just re- would go and watch meteor showers with my parents. I would watch science fiction, Star Trek. I went through my dad's science fiction books on his shelves when I was old enough to to start taking on novels. I uh, I watched the first space shuttle launch in 1981. I bought my own telescope when I was like 13 years old. And the nerdiest thing is that when I was in high school, I was I took the journalism program. It was like a three-year program while I was in high school. And I did a column on astronomy every month for the years that I was in, in high school, what you could see in the night sky, new discoveries in space and astronomy. It was, it was hilarious. And then for some weird reason, I didn't continue on in that vein like you did. Yeah. I went, I decided it would be a lot more practical for me to go and take engineering. And then I shifted over to computer science and then was in sort of the computer field for many years and but I was always inter- interested in space and astronomy. And I was at this point where I realized that my knowledge was sort of stuck at a six year old reading our universe. And I wanted to progress in in what I understood about the current state of space and astronomy. I sort of had I had the case for Mars in one hand, written by Bob Zubrin, and I had Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan. I read both those books, I got really inspired. And I decided, well, I'm just gonna start a website on the side where I explain concepts in space and astronomy. and, And by doing so, I will learn. And I just did it as a as a side gig while I was doing my main job. And within about a year, I was like, okay, this is all I want to do with the rest of my life. Like, whatever it's going to take, I need to stop helping banks make websites. And I need to start being a space journalist. And that was 1999. So I'm closing in on 24 years now of of doing this. So the dark web's loss is astronomy's game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, one of the things, you know, whenever I think about you, uh, as I often do, uh, I think that you have exceptional taste. And I'm not just saying this, you know, because you've had me on so many times, but but you actually Mm -hmm. have like a very highly curated uh, list of topics, um, the way that you do your live streams, your Q&As. And I wanted to ask you first, how do you know when something is hype? And something is uh, legitimate. How do you filter mm-hmm. that out? What's the Kane method? Tell me, please. Well, I mean, it's funny. It's people like you, actually. I have a council of experts because, like, you know, my background is in computer science. So yeah. I can t- help figure out if I think an AI technology is going to be nonsense or if someone has truly proved that P equals not equal to NP. But, but my, when I started, I very much came to it from a science fiction enthusiasm state. Wormholes, white holes, black, you know, faster than warp speed, whatever Star Trek told me was true. And I was really lucky to have a bunch of of astrophysicists that I got a chance to talk with. Dr. Pamela Gay was a good example. You know, we did astronomy cast. And if you listen, if you go back to the early episodes, I am just the, why are the real laws of physics that we have to obey? (laughs) And, and then, uh, you know, I was friends with Phil plate work debunking stuff. And, and then, uh, you know, I've had a chance to, to do a lot of correspondence with Ethan Siegel starts with a bang. Dr. Paul Sutter, uh, Brian Koberlein, who who writes with us at Universe Today, 
and you just you get your wrist slapped enough times that you start to able to strike that balance between a genuine enthusiasm for interesting things that are happening in space and astronomy and a reckless optimism for things that aren't really science. And, and I think the more you like, I think there's this cycle that people go in where they first start out and they're like, I want to talk about Dyson spheres, <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay, sure. Yeah. We can talk about that. That's what you're into by all means. But then after a while, you know, if they, they've checked their watch and it's been a week later and there's no Dyson spheres have shown up, <laughs> they'll be like, okay, well then let's talk about this dart mission thing. And now we're cooking. Now we've got some interesting space news that is unfolding and changing and there's new discoveries being made. And, and that's what I get really excited about now is just like this perfect balance between what are we doing now and what's coming up next? What are the big mysteries that we have and where might we find those answers in a way that's practical that we might get somewhere within our lives? Mm. Um, talk to me about like how you distinguish between the ultimately popular. I find this this phenomenon. I think it's called audience capture, where you have just you know kind of a topic that you know is going to be garnering you a lot of views, and and yet um, it may not be uh, along the lines of something that you find as legitimate as some of your other topics. I mean, you mentioned Dyson spheres. I can't resist. Freeman Dyson was the first guest on the Into the Impossible podcast. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and of course he had his, he had his uh, kind of, you know, more far out ideas and, and more close <laughs> ideas. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. but, you know, lately in the zeitgeist, as, as they say, uh, has been percolating this notion that, you know, we are routinely being visited by alien, um, artifacts mm. and crafts. And, and I've, I've had on, you know, some of the big names in the, uh, in the skeptic field, you know, from Mick West, to, uh, Michael Shermer, mm -hmm. but I've also had on a lot of, you know, people that are proponents of it and, and really believe that we are being visited by physics of the 29th century or something like, how do you know, um, how to strike the balance? Cause you, you also will have legitimate scientists that present fact-based, um, research I've had on more, maybe, um, let, let me ask you, would you have on, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my past guest, Tom DeLong? I mean, he, he was on the show. Um, I got a lot of flack for that. It actually is my most popular. I don't think I would. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm sure it was popular, but I probably wouldn't. No. And people want to have a part yeah. too. And I'm like, I got as much, but I, 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 before I ask you if, you know, it, how you would react to that, um, I just want to say that, um, I did get him to actually answer some factual questions that even Joe Rogan never asked him, like, what is the provenance of the alien artifacts that you have? And he, he actually yeah. admitted for the first time, I think, that he can't prove a linear yeah. chain of command from start to finish. Anyway, how do you know how to have yeah. that balance? Um, aliens are super popular nowadays. There is a UAP <laughs> pro, uh, study being undertaken by the president of the Simons Foundation, my, my ultimate boss, David Spurgle, um, along with my colleague Shelley Wright here at UC San Diego. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you know when to, uh, you know, when to lean into what your audience wants and what you personally may or may not be interested in? So I am not super interested in, in trying to do stuff that the audience wants. Um, I'm, everything I do is my curiosity. Like if I'm not curious about this, if this is what I'm obsessing about right now, it just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So, so. I, it's really simple. It's just like whatever I'm curious about, whatever ideas I'm ruminating on right now are what I will, 
I will book interviews with people. I will uh, choose those as topics for the news segments. And I'm, like, it, like it, it's every part. Like, it's what we're covering on Universe today. It's who I'm interviewing. It's the kinds of questions I'm gravitating towards answering. It's just what I'm. I'm following my curiosity, and it doesn't. It hasn't steered me wrong so far. Mm. And and that the conversation that you have with the viewers, and I'm sure you have the same one that they're in the chat and they're asking for follow up questions. You will eventually reach the the place of curiosity again. Like you might know the answers to the simple questions about um, the like signals that are in the the cosmic microwave background radiation etc right. but you could have a conversation with someone is if they just kept asking you questions you would get to a place where you're like i don't know i'm curious again even something that you know a field that you know quite well if, if a person can can dig and be curious after a while it's kind of infectious so so i don't really it's it's driven by my curiosity, not driven by me trying to optimize what other people, what I think other people want to hear. Um, and I think that's important. As it sort of back to your your idea about, you know, skepticism, like like this idea of are we alone in the universe is a scientific question, and anyone who tells you that it isn't is ridiculous. It is absolutely a scientific question, right? We're here, we're on Earth, life's everywhere. It's a big universe. Where's all the life? How could we search for life? And and I find, and I spend a ton of time investigating that question with the kinds of people that I talk to, et cetera. But, I, but when a person has anecdotal evidence for something that they think they've seen, I don't find that compelling. And so you have to just kind of strike that balance of like, what yeah. is the kind of evidence? What are the kind of questions? What would it take to convince you? Like, like, are there artifacts of alien civilizations here in the, the solar system? That's a really good question. Yeah. And it's a really, like, if there was one way that aliens would, would travel from star system to star system, they would send self-replicating robot probes that would be pumping out more robot probes that would be in a place where there's a lot of minerals. Let's look in the asteroid belt. That's a really compelling idea to me. Yeah. Alert. Not, yeah, not that they're flying through the atmosphere and only a few people have seen them and so on. So I think well, it's- They weren't lurking on on the, the whatever the asteroid that Dart smashed into, because that, that would be a kind of rude welcome to the solar system. <laughs> welcome to the solar system, yeah. We, 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 we caught you, smash, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, you always have to strike this balance. And as you learn more, you realize where you want to sit on that, on that conversation. And my curiosity, just following my curiosity has never failed me. Yeah. Yeah. That I know of. I say this taste that's, that's kind of remarkable. And I also think you have a, not to, you know, turn this into a mutual admiration society, but, or a, a, a unidirectional admiration society, but, but the fact is you have a very large audience and I think there's more sort of gravitas that, you know, like I could, when I was small, like when I had Tom DeLong on or when I, um, you know, had on some more speculative gate names, I had 20,000 subscribers. And I, I treasure each, I fought hard for each and every one, but you have <laughs> yeah, yeah, 400,000 yeah. plus the, you know, plus the universe today audience, which is huge. Plus you're huge following on Twitter and social. Um, there is an extra level. I mean, do you, uh, you have this, you know, kind of counsel of people that you talk to, but uh, how does that weigh upon you? Because you can actually, 
be influential in a way that a smaller channel may not be able to be. I think that's a ridiculous thing to say to me. Um, and terrifying. So, so if you, so if you think that I somehow have some kind of, although it does happen from time to time, like I'll reach out to someone and be like, you know, dear Dr. So-and-so, my name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of universe today. And they'd be like, I know who you are, Fraser. Yes. I'd like to do an interview. And then I'll talk to them. I'm like, yeah, you know, I was, your, your work was really influential to me while I was getting my PhD. And I'm just like, <laughs> so uh, I'm not worthy. Um, so I, I mean, like, what can I do? Right? Like, like I'm a journalist, I'm not a scientist. Right. And I'm, I try to be really clear about that, that, that when I'm explaining concepts in space and astronomy, I am just a fancy word monkey who is able to repeat the kinds of discoveries that people like you make right? You're the one who set up a telescope at the South Pole and tried to find out the polarity of the cosmic microwave background radiation, not me. And so um, it's my job to help you and people like you to be able to explain the work that you're doing in a way that it gets a fair shake from people out there. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I don't have any of that responsibility. But there is a journalistic kind of overlay that that is unique. I, I look at like what's the what's my um, unfair advantage to whatever extent I have. Well, I'm an actual scientist who's a professor's tenured and gives me some. Yeah. And I'm doing experiments. I'm working with cool students and scientists, all, literally on every continent on Earth. Uh, and um, but you know that's kind of like my unique thing. You're one of the few you know in the science podcast. I mean, I've talked with Arvin and talk with Sabina and I've talked with Dr. Becky um, and they all have their unfair advantages. But I, I've always thought yours is that, I mean, you have this journalistic, it's not like a cakewalk to go on the podcast. I mean, you're, you're not going to ask like, do you deny the allegations against you made by those 14 Sherpas? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to do that, but you have a journalistic um, uh, kind of mentality, which I think mm -hmm. is your unfair advantage. I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to. Yeah. I mean, I think like my job and, you know, I don't have to put people's feet to the fire very often, right. but when I have to, I will. And, and I'm not trying to be mean about it. And I'm not trying to be a gotcha and I'm not trying to generate controversy. But when I ask a person a question and they don't answer the question, it's really obvious to me that they didn't, they just didn't answer the question. And I get to ask again and again. And, and like, like, am I, you know, I could say like, am I, Am I doing this wrong? Did you not catch the question that I just asked you? Because the answer you gave me was, was insufficient. Let me try again. And so, you know, you don't want to have to pull out the journalism card because you want it to be a conversation. And most of the time it's just educational. I don't know anything about what it is that they're talking about, or I know very little. And, but if I have to, then I will. Yeah. And and I suffer no consequences from that through because I don't have any professional interaction with them. Right. It's not like I'm, it's not like I'm, they're going to be approving my grant. Right. <laughs> I'm independent. Universe today is completely hundred percent independent. We have no allegiance to anybody. And so we can kind of float free like a, you know, 
like a leaf in the wind like and a uh here floating through our solar system but i do want to make yeah exactly people yeah you join uh your patreon as i am i am a moon member i think uh for many Thanks. many 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 trillions of, of microseconds and uh but i do want to uh encourage people to support fraser the best way you can do that is follow his content and then also there's a patreon uh as well we're talking with fraser kane the proprietor of universe today so many other things uh puts out so much content uh, but I noticed one one thing that you do, and I, I don't know anything about you, um, you know, religiously or otherwise. But um, it seems to me you take a Sabbath, you take a you take a break every year mm. from, from the mm-hmm. grind that is it. And you were very concrete. You were like, "I'd like to have you on." You know, I invited myself on again. You know, last year, and yeah. you're gracious. We say, "Like I take a sabbatical, basically, for the whole month of August or most of August." Um, July and August. July and August. Okay, so talk. Yeah. To me. Are you out there just like fly fishing on the on the Canada, no? I wish Olive River in Vancouver. What are you doing? Well, what does it mean to you to take that break? And what? You, how would you advise other STEM individuals? Most of my podcasts are young, yeah. you know, twenty to eight, sixty or whatever, or older men, uh, but they're in the yeah. STEM field. Yeah. Advise them. Why is that so important? I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah, like the. Our lives are spent doing a lot of administration, a lot of detail work, like a lot of just paddling to to keep your head above water. But the most important impacts that we can make are the time that's spent in quiet contemplation, the time spent where there are no um, demands on your time and you can think and your ideas and thoughts can fully expand within the 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 space that is that is needed. And so on the one hand, like while I'm walking in the forest, or while I'm cutting down a tree with a chainsaw, um, my mind is expanding. And I am thinking very deeply about the work that I'm doing and 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 reflecting on what it is that I do. And I and I wouldn't have that time. If I wouldn't have the chance to have those thoughts if I was just constantly just grinding all the time. So yeah, so we've been we've been doing this. I've done this for 15 years. Um, I I let everybody know there's no meetings, there's no live streams, there's no podcasts, there's no nothing for July and August. We, we stop Astronomy Cast, we stop the Weekly Space Hangout, we stop my Open Space. It all just stops at the, the you know July 30th, and then we pick it all back up again September 1st. And it's two months that I get a chance to to travel to get away from having to be tied to a high speed internet connection. I mean, I'm sure you know what it's like. Like you yeah. can never be like you're in a hotel and you're like, oh, I got a live stream. I got to figure this out. You know, like that's not fun. So yeah, it's important to do that. So yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, that's why I think the those sabbaticals exist. Is that you've got to. Or you just be spent spinning your wheels until yeah. you die. Yeah, you'll burn out, and uh, and like, then you know you have to put your oxygen mask on first, as they say. And uh, I think that's a huge part of it. Um, it's hard for you know people like me who's you know got a you know, multiple careers and young kids and everything uh, because. But but I find it do I do find it so refreshing. And actually, I tell my students that I say you um, you may not work seven days a week. But I'm almost like you must work six days a week. In other words, like yeah. the fact that you earn a sabbatical is something that to be earned. And, and of course, they get time off and they get travel and, and so forth. But I, I find that it's ultimately selfish for me to do that because they come back energized, refreshed with new ideas. 
that serves to inspire me. Um, and you know, they have to try these hacks of like, oh, delete, you know, get a get a turn all your icons black on your phone and white. It never works. Um, you know, no, work. no. Technology is great. And, no, yeah. There was a. I went on a like I I quit one job and I went on this like trip to Europe and I had to have been traveling for two months at the time. It was about five weeks at the time. And I was on a ferry boat in Greece and I was, I was reading a book and I finally felt my brain unwind. And it had been five weeks of me just being in a pressure cooker. And, and suddenly I was just like, Oh, like suddenly the weight, the final piece, the last straw came off my back. Right. And you feel it. And I don't think people realize just how wound up and tight they are all the time with all of the things that are going on. And yet it's those perceptions that you have to be able to make to, to make these fundamental shifts in, in what is that you're doing and to stay on top of things. So yeah, it's exciting. And one of the signature kind of things of, of, of satisfaction in the behind the scenes segment of our interview that nobody ever heard or will hear, uh, was, uh, you know, kind of like, I asked you, you know, Fraser, you, you know, where do you like, where would you go with an infinite budget? And you want to, uh, you want to recapitulate what you said? It was very, uh, very, you know, kind of important for me to hear at the time. Wait a second. Like if I had an infinite budget oh, for space and astronomy, like, if you had a huge budget, you know, just like 10 X what you have now, how would it affect your life? You well, day, oh, like me as a, oh, like me as a, as a journal, uh, nothing. Oh, right. So I probably, I, I probably said I wouldn't do anything. I, right. I, I wouldn't even know said. what to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. so that to me is like the hedonic treadmill. It's like, you know, people, you get more subs, you want more subs, you get more money, you want more money. But it seems to me mm -hmm. you're kind of like that Zen mentality that like, who's the happy man? That's he, he who's happy with what he has. And I will, but I wonder though, like if you did kind of think crazily, I mean, like, podcast interview on the moon or on the ISS, like what would be like a crazy 10 X experience or 11 X experience that maybe not, not like going to the moon or whatever yet, but um, what, what would yeah. be like an interview besides yours truly for like the sixth time? Uh, what's like a dream kind of uh, either interview or live stream or, uh, or like something totally different, like short form content or what would, what, what do you do? Yeah. You must. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. Um, like, like there was definitely a time when I'd be like, boy, I really wish I could reach out to Dr. Brian Keating and he'd actually get back to me and we could do an interview together. Uh -huh. But, but I can do that now. And, and I'm just like, I'm shocked at the people that I've had a chance to talk to. No, I mean, you too, right? Nobel prize winners, um, uh, astronomers, authors, uh, astronauts, space scientists, like if this person exists and they have an email address, typically I can coordinate, there might be some nagging involved, but I can typically coordinate an interview with the person. Um, I, I definitely feel like the coverage that we have on universe today now is, is as good as it, as it, as I want it to be. I mean, it could definitely be a little better. I mean, like, I look at stuff at, at scientific America. I look, I, I see some outlets which have vastly bigger budgets than me. And I think, okay, yeah, we could, but I, but then I don't know if it would be sustainable. And so I wonder if they're just burning investor money. Like we are sustainable. We are unkillable in terms <laughs> of, a, of a journalistic endeavor. And, and that feels, that feels, that's the balance that makes me the happiest is I don't want to, you know, if, 
like if someone dropped ten million dollars on my lap, I'd be like, "Am I gonna have to pay this back? Like, how's this gonna work?" I don't like. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. Like, investors are a bad thing, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, so the All more. Right. I mean, I think like, like the thing is like when I get a chance, like we've had some really amazing writers join the team. Some people have been legends in the field. Um, Alan Boyle, who is sort of one of my mentors, uh, Carolyn Collins Peterson, aka the space writer. Um, Nancy Atkinson is just about to write her 6,000th article for university today. And so like, I see a lot of these writers who I, who I love to be able to bring on the team. And I think if I had more budget then I could bring on even more writers and more, do more stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's all. Yeah. Well, that's good to, it's good to be satisfied with where you're at. What's been the most like sh surprising or interesting, <clears throat> um, discovery this past year and you can't use the letters JWST or W. Yeah, I've got it. You're not I've got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is an interview that I just did about a week ago, which was a guy named Dylan Brout from the Pantheon plus team. And I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. this, but Pantheon plus is this database of 1,570 type one, a supernova yeah. seen recently, but also ones that were seen back in 1998 and earlier that helped measure like help figure out distance in the middle ranges of the universe and the amount of precision and effort that they that went into building this database is really stunning and the kinds of conclusions like they were able to measure the presence of dark matter and dark energy to five sigma at various points in the universe that's like a one in 3.6 million chance that they're wrong which okay. is very low five sigma is is it is an ex just an insanely good measurement. And so you've got this beautiful measurement about the expansion rate of the universe, the amount that dark matter and matter was pulling at the expansion of the universe. It's huge. It's huge. And I think that, that people people and i'm sure you get this as well but people will just kind of show up and go like i don't get dark matter i don't like it it's you know, you scientists are wrong you're just guessing and you're like no no <laughs> like this has been measured to a level of precision that we can scarcely comprehend and yet there it is mm. sure nobody knows what it is but that's like future scientists problem <laughs> It's about well, it's about measuring its existence. Its existence with precision is beautiful, and and I just found that so inspiring. I love. I mean, you know, we talked about this last time on our interview. We're right? like, I am such a fan of the observers, of the experimenters, of the people who are out there practically making the measurements beyond the theorists. Like, I prefer the experimenters. I'll take a I'll take a, a party full of of experimenters over well, that, a party yeah, full uh, of theorists any day of the week. Uh, an experiment uh, theorist only has to be right once to make a famous career and experimentalist yeah. only has to be wrong once to end their career. Although <laughs> yeah, I'm proof of a counterfactual to that. Well, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I can't help but read one comment from uh, one of the listeners. We're going to take questions. So I want you all to put your questions in the, uh, in the chat box, in the live chat uh, and, or you can, uh, you can put them on YouTube. I might get to that. Uh, but there's a, a young person that looks like uh, listening from somewhere. 
maybe over in India, perhaps talking about how how magical it is to be uh, to be able to do this during Diwali, which it is Happy Diwali, Fraser. That's the festival yeah. of light, which is very important to us. And uh, how cool it is that a billion people are not watching this broadcast, but a billion people are celebrating this thing united and that we're communicating at the speed of light nearabouts um, all the way from North America there. I think it is pretty amazing. And I feel like it is a kind of confluence. And, and I, I claim it's, you know, it's a moral obligation <clears throat> for scientists like me who get paid by the public um, to communicate in terms of the public can understand, you know, like I, uh, if, if I was working, you know, in a, uh, in an envelope making factory or whatever, and my boss comes up and says, you know, Keating, what are you up to? Oh, yeah. You can't understand what I'm doing. It's very special. <laughs> yeah. You can't, no, yeah. I'd be fired in a second. Yeah. Right. So um, what do you believe? Yeah. Like when, when people say no, you know, no, I don't want to come on. I mean, I've, I'm, my, my fair share of rejections. Um, I've, I've actually been rejected from a hundred percent of the living Nobel Prize winners in physics that are women. Um, uh, but <laughs> they had good reasons. But like, um, how do you feel about that when there is kind of just like burning knowledge and, and, and I understand why they did so completely, just burn out, whatever. Um, maybe someday I'll keep trying. But, uh, but I want to ask you, you know, if you do encounter kind of the resistance where there is some amazing result. Today I was just reading about a result from the Ice Cube neutrino experiment down. Yes at the South Pole where I've been twice in my life and done some research oh, and man. know a lot of those guys and gals that work on that amazing looking at quantum gravity. And I'm like, I can't find like who to like, I know people on the project, but I don't know who'd be like a good get, so to speak, not yeah. to boost ratings or whatever, but to, mm -hmm. to communicate as a, as a, a lay person could understand it, but also knows the yeah. science. How do you do that? How, you know, so I think you're overthinking it. I think you're totally overthinking it. Like, like I will see a paper. Uh, there was a paper that I just read today about stars engulfing their planets. And I was like, I want to talk about that, please. Um, and so then I just look at who's the first name on the paper and yeah. I reached out to her and I sent her an email. And if she doesn't respond, then I'll try the second person on the paper and then I'll do the third person. And so the person is not an established science communicator they are, they're not a household name. No one knows who they are, but many times those people have absolutely fascinating things to say. And they're even better than a person who does have a lot of experience because they have a lot of canned responses and they've, and they're a little, uh, nervous and, and, and suspicious of talking to a journalist, but a person who hasn't been burned yet um you can have a really interesting and forthright conversation about the work that they're doing and it's a joy and so i don't i have i place zero uh interest in the in who the person is okay. so it's more about i just like i see a topic that is interesting to me i reach out to the principal investigator of that project and i asked if i can do an interview with them and I will check beforehand just to see if I can see some YouTube interviews just to see if they've ever done anything or like see them give a presentation at the American Astronomical Society or anything. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't do that math at all. Wow. And, and, and they're my favorite conversations by far. Like once again, you know, I'll take a room, I'll take an interview, I'll take a podcast full of no names <laughs> than science stars, even though 
it won't necessarily bring in the the traffic. Right. It's going to be a fascinating conversation with somebody who has fresh things to say and you can have a very natural conversation with them. So that would be, you know, if I was to give you some advice, yeah, it would be you're overthinking it. Like, yeah, just I've, I've like had good luck. Like, I, I can claim I discovered a star, you know, although she would probably be correct to dispute me. But Chiara Manganelli, who's at uh, Manganelli, who's at UConn stores in Connecticut, she's been a leader in um, nanograv and the you know, pulsar timing experiments. Yeah had some really interesting results on stochastic backgrounds, gravitational waves. And uh, she was on my podcast uh, about years ago. And then just recently I saw her pop up on Sean Carroll's podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, pretty proud that I got, got to her first. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll have these conversations with these people and they, and other people will realize how well-spoken they are. And, but, but again, it's sort of like, like if you can help them move their careers forward, that's wonderful. And that's a really nice side benefit, but it it's more about you finding a name finding f finding a topic like that is exciting to you and you're curious about and then finding one name and and then start talking to that yeah to and that, i have some advantage pick one of those people <clears throat> at random it just yeah i mean I, I actually know one of the lead professors on the project so i'll probably have him on or um maybe yeah his colleagues but um so when you think about uh some of the questions that are coming in this from Billy McBride, the entertainer. Uh, Billy's asking, what is the next scientific revolution? So if you had to put your, your kind of um, predicting hat on, maybe not astronomy, maybe anything else, but what would you say is the next scientific revolution? And don't say astrology well, like did in private. Like, oh, well, okay, well, there's that. No, I mean, I think when I think about the impact that computer science is, is having and artificial intelligence, uh, you know, we recently got a result that a artificial intelligence was able to, to map a whole bunch of protein folding, um, artificial intelligence was able to figure out a new, some new linear algebra calculation algorithms, which is pretty amazing. So it's this force multiplier that applies across every field. And I think we're, you know, in many fields, we're shifting from, you can make a single observation with a really good tool to meta analysis of really large amounts of data, you're going to be studying a million type 1a supernova with mm -hmm. Vera Rubin to measure the expansion rate of the universe, a human being can't do that. But you can have a computer assist you as a very powerful tool that can you can work together to come to the answer. So I, so I think the once we start to apply the computational power of computers to the kinds of questions that we have, I think we're going to see another revolution in across the sciences. And right now, most science, and I'm sure the science that you do, it's just done as a very manual process. Right. right. But imagine you could feed 1 billion stars from Gaia data into a supercomputer, some kind of learning algorithm and go like, you know, what, what's in there? What's, what's interesting in there? And you could pull some really interesting, see some really interesting, um, patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. And I wonder, you know, from the, uh, the just wedding of the appetite, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I was, a uh, beginning college, I think, when Hubble was launched, and you know, wasn't really sure I wanted to do astronomy uh, back then. And uh, I wonder, you know, if you look at Webb now, for the young people that are you know alive now and have the opportunity, are there things that you know that have only just begun to scratch the surface of your cerebral cortex? 
in terms of what web could do or are there things that you're like i if i could you know break their break their wall of silence and get their embargo lifted just for me and i'm a journalist as you are uh rather so what would you want to know? What what kind of what subject or capability that we know that web probably has is latent and is most interesting to you to hopefully find out about soon? Yeah, I mean, I think where I get pretty like like web is phenomenal. It's gigantic, you know, six point five meters compared to Hubble's two point six meters. Yeah. It can see out just it can do a Hubble deep field in any direction in like half an hour. It's incredible but it still has its limit, right? It still is only so large. I mean, it's not gonna be the the telescope that's going to find, or it's going to be able to look at the surface of other Earth-sized worlds orbiting around sun-like stars and tell us what they're eating for breakfast. But when you match up the power of web with gravitational lensing, you're adding this additional telescope lens in front of your of web that gives you like another 10,000 times resolution to be able to see objects that are behind it. And then we start to see the first stars forming in the universe. Um, you know, there's some really interesting periods after the cosmic microwave background, before the period of reionization, before the, the, the first galaxies were coming together, when a lot of big mysteries about the universe are hidden. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite excited about how the way we learn some amazing things by web use or sorry, by Hubble using gravitational lensing. Once web starts using gravitational lensing more dependably, I think it's going to be next level again. I think they're under, and I really feel like they're underselling it. Like they're not talking about it, right. but you take web and you stare at a gravitational lens that only web can see. You're seeing something that is magnified behind it. That is that it would take a, a, a Louvre to be able to see. Right. No, it's, it's uh, so exciting. And then of course, you know what the capabilities are, really not known. But one thing that you and I talked about in our most recent conversation, you know, capabilities that maybe web doesn't have that some people think it does have and this parlayed yeah. into a discussion of, you know, the Big Bang and its and its uh, possible non confirmation uh, by uh, a man by the name. I've of heard that I've heard that the Big Bang has been has been canceled. Yeah, I, I bunked it. Uh, I don't know if that's proper term but it was debunked and then i bunked it and then uh but it's uh, it's kind of unresolved I put a poll is that what it is you rebunked it you rebunked the bag the big bang gotta yeah. bunk it you know i, I you know yeah. not just for beds anymore and i put a poll up on my on my website on uh, my youtube channel and i asked people in the community tab you know who won the debate you know the big bang supporters or the big bang never happened supporter it was about you know two to one, maybe uh, there was a little bit of, you know, kind of margin of error, you know, getting into the election season down here in America, you may know. Uh, and there's always a margin of error, but it wasn't like, you know, a hundred to zero uh, for either side, which was kind of surprising to me. And I know Eric's yeah. learners probably listening out there. Hello, Eric. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the question of, you know, can you resolve something scientifically in a debate format? I've had some debates. I, I always feel like debates and Martin Reese, who's an upcoming guest on my show, he's, he's, basically of the opinion that debates are pointless. I wonder- I would agree with that. Yeah, so, uh, but what do you think that scientists have an obligation to the public? In other words, 
there are all these papers published that Lerner took and used the title panic at the discs and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And use that to stir up kind of this notion that astronomers are in chaos and there are all these anomalies we can't explain. That's true. There are anomalies we can't mm-hmm. explain, but that's the whole point of science. Um, what uh, role should debates have? Obviously, they have to be done with comedy and a little comedy never hurts. What should a debate be used for, if anything? Well, I think like, like I think that's what's really important is the way the scientific method works that that skepticism and debunking one another is the is the table stakes for being a scientist like you're you're going to be presenting information and and you're as you again probably are aware of your colleagues are going to descend on you like a pack of hyenas to tear apart every single statement that you make it makes you stronger it makes you better it makes you go into your research very carefully knowing that you're going to have to defend every single scrap of data that you have gathered and every conclusion that you make there are no fields that have that level of rigor and um, and sort of combaticism, I don't know how you describe it, with each other, like science. And yet, here we are talking on the internet, using lasers, hard drives, I'm using a satellite system to be able to communicate with you. Like, we are the beneficiaries of this powerful philosophy of science and the scientific method that was really only developed since the renaissance i mean it's only been cranky for a couple hundred years and yet here we are and it's and it's only by adhering to the scientific method that we that we get there um and i think that the scientific method is so powerful and so effective that it has shaken other philosophies, other beliefs, other systems, ways of knowing. And it hasn't, it's not, it's not like it's been targeted. It's just a, a side effect mm. that, that the theory of evolution is so strong and so well defended. It has so many independent lines of evidence that people will it will question the the beliefs that they were raised with. Right. And that's not science's problem. Science is not coming after people and saying, you know, all that stuff that you were taught, it's not true. They're just saying, hey, look, these life forms seem to be related to those life forms. This is how life probably works. And and I think that 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 process is is so important. And mm. I, yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like like that is the what we can sort of all take from it, right? And I, mean, like, I don't know, like like it's got to affect the way you think, right? Like the way you interact with your colleagues is just definitely someone says something to you, like the Big Bang isn't real or whatever, and your mind just kind of goes, okay, so what's your evidence? Da da da, right? Yeah, it's but there's a, I think it's very valuable. A, you know, in other words, there's a, there's a concept in Judaism, you know, I'm Jewish and there's a Talmudic expression, which is called, uh, basically it goes, uh, know how to answer a heretic, <laughs> which, you know, kind of has a lot of loaded terms in it, but, but, uh, but yeah. the bottom line is, and I don't think I do a good job. I don't think we as a community of professional scientists do a great job of just with like the background foundations. You know, I asked my, uh, I have an opportunity, you know, once every six years to ask like any question in physics, to a graduate student on whose committee I'm serving. 
right? So I love to do like the general question. So I'll ask them, you know, uh, how do we know that the, uh, I, I say, I usually phrase it in the form of something provocative. I'll say, I believe the sun orbits the earth. Prove me wrong. And they'll be like, mm-hmm. first they'll be like, ah. I'll be like, no, no, really, prove me wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that the, you know, that yeah, the uh, yeah. 5,783 years old, prove me wrong. Um, and actually I was yeah. in Italy last week and I was, um, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, Professor Luke Barnes, who's a professor in Western Sydney, Australia, um, who uh, is a remarkable person in that he's a legitimate hardcore theoretical physicist, but he grew up a young earth creationist. And, and he and I talked about, you know, religion. He's, he's Christian. I'm Jewish. But we ha- we had a lot to say. And we were kind of, you know, at this at a, at a workshop where we were talking about, you know, the possible debates between religion and science. And, and he's obviously a hardcore scientist. But he, and he overcame the young. I mean, his father was a was a minister. I can't wait for you to see this interview. He's such an interesting guy. Yeah, it in the amazing. Young Earth yeah. Creation Church in Australia. Uh, and yet he went to Cambridge. He ended up working. At, you know, he's an incredible scientist. He overcame the belief that the universe is young. Uh, but I think it's it's very valuable to have that experience to know like well how do we know the big bang is the most accurate not infallible not a hundred percent certainly not disproven um, and sometimes as uh, one of the co- one of the um, professors who was there at this meeting who's not uh, not either you know I think I would call him agnostic as you know Freeman Dyson was an agnostic an actual agnostic not just says I'm an agnostic so that the theist mm-hmm. you know don't try to convert me more or the atheist you know don't think I'm a rube <clears throat> but uh, one of yeah. the professors there I won't say who he is because you know hopefully I'll do an interview with him someday but he said um, no it's important to ask questions even about evolution even about Darwin even about the oh evidence. absolutely and because yeah. it's where the cracks come in that the light gets in right as as uh, what's it, Leonard Cohen used to say uh, that's how the light gets in and I think in this case I want more of my students to know to teach the controversy so it's not that you know the earth is flat or something but it always does kind of devolve into matters of taste and I think what what I think both of our audiences like is that we are we're talking about actually hardcore the cutting edge of technology and we're not afraid to take on these controversies even things like you know are aliens visiting us to this day right <laughs> yeah well i mean i think that your your responsibility as a scientist is to do science yeah. and and i think that a lot of people unfairly are asking more from a scientist than doing science it's like asking a mechanic to be a philosopher like their responsibility is to fix cars and and all of the work that goes into the point that they can fix a car and then they fix cars. Now they're free to go beyond that and talk about the philosophy of fixing cars and, 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 but I think that there is like an, because whether a car is fixed or not fixed, doesn't crash into somebody else's worldview. It's an uncontroversial job. But when science crashes into someone's worldview, it's not the scientist's problem. It's not their fault. They are like, obviously, if they're rocking, if they're proselytizing, if they are going and attending church and then standing up in the middle of the church and telling everybody that they're idiots for believing in their God, that's bad. That's wrong. But in many cases, the scientist is not doing any of that. The scientist is just like going, like, I just, I looked at a black hole and this is what I've, and you know, here's what I saw. And now I'm going to go look at a quick, you know, now I'm going to go look at the big bang and here's what I'm going to see. And it's, it's the people with the worldview who are taking offense, who are using this as a chance 
as a as an existential crisis for them but that's a them problem not scientists problem yeah. and i think my job as a science communicator is to help assist in explaining the science that is getting done in the most honest way that i can and to take some of that load off the yeah. scientists because they're busy doing the science. It would be literally like the mechanic having to defend every time they <laughs> Although, you know, swapped I, out the, an engine on a car. I mean, like with respect, as I always do, you know, I was in, as I said, I was in Florence. I went to Galileo's, you know, final home slash prison, uh, which is quite nice. And I think, you know, Jeffrey Epstein would have loved to be in a prison like that. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, when I was there, I realized that, you know, Galileo, not only did he, you know, kind of go against the the the, the orders of the church, he kind of disobeyed like on a totally. friendly, uh, you know, kind of proposition from, from Pope Urban. I said, look, you can study it. Uh, you can study heliocentrism, but that meant doing things in Latin. That was, you know, I mean, Fraser and I, of course, know Latin. You know, we can communicate yeah. uh, flawlessly. But but back then, that was the language of, of, of scientists and specialists. And Italian was the language of the people. And they said, just as long as you don't publish anything in Italian, a couple of years later, the dialogo, which is not uh, which is not Latin, that's Italian, comes out. And then... You know, it was so amazing to me to be in this, and it was a prison. I mean, there are bars on the windows. There was a guard out front, but it made it so important to me to see that he was a communicator. Fraser, he he wrote mm -hmm. another book. You know, I've I've published the first ever audio book with Jim Gates and with uh, Carlo Ravelli, Frank Wilczek, Fabiola Giannotti, and others of uh, his dialogue. The dialogue that got him into trouble, but then he published another book called The Discourse, and he did that under house arrest, and it was a prison. And uh, yeah. but somehow Fraser, under penalty of death, I mean, he was he was imprisoned under penalty of suspicion of heresy, not heresy. He would have been killed, but it was suspicion of heresy, which I guess is a technicality. But if he got this now, he actually had the, all the pages smuggled out, four hundred pages long, and it was smuggled to the Netherlands, where it was published by Elsevier, you know, which publishes a lot of journals nowadays, still in public, still in French. <laughs> that's so amazing. But his life like, yeah. to communicate to the public, and and I think that's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Galileo was picking fights though. Like yeah, Galileo w was absolutely picking fights. He was absolutely kind of pushing the boundary. I love him, but he's yeah, a and, lovable schmuck. And he was the equivalent of standing up in the middle of the, of the church and, and telling everybody that they're wrong and they're idiots. And he was right in this case about, about the observations that he had, he had made. And, and, but if he hadn't done that, the discoveries that Galileo had made would have come out 10 years later by Cassini or by, right? Like they, like they were inevitable because they are, they are hidden in nature itself. And there's only so long you can go trying to have your philosophy overcome nature. Right. <laughs> nature wins out in the end every single time. <laughs> and, and so again, if you are going to set your philosophy, set your belief system against nature, that's a you problem. That's yeah. nature is going to show you how you're, how wrong you are every single time. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that, you know, there are, there is bad science and there is, there are bad conclusions and there are bad actions that get taken from science. But I do think that at the end of the day, a, it's a scientist's job to do science. And yeah. no, I, I, and I, I think we place, I think we place too much or people place too much emphasis on, on 
them attempting to needing to communicate what they're doing better. But at the same time, I think that, you know, people like you, people like uh, Sabina, people, you know, people who want to communicate and, and help make this stuff make more people is a wonderful instinct. Yeah, you're going to pay a price in that it's going to take time away from you being able to do science. But the benefit that you get is you are potentially inspiring more people out there to do science to understand what's going on to think critically to, to, you know, and there's and and, and that's always my crypto my it's always my greatest weakness is that I'm not a cosmologist, right? I can't go right to first principles and and explain something because I because I can do the math, right? And it's really valuable. A lot of authority can come from a person who can do the math. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always say that <clears throat> you know what I do during the day. I have to talk to contractors at Chile or the South Pole, or I have to talk to you know some some diesel supplier, and it's very little you know pondering the universe, scratching my non-existent Fraser Kane like beard. But yeah. I do feel like it's uh, you know those are the people I have to talk to. Uh, including, yeah. you know, telecons of which I have one in a few minutes anyway, but we're g- I'm going to go along. They're going to let them wait for a little bit. Uh, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to go with like half past. So okay, whatever yeah, you yeah, do, yeah, I got to, yeah. Okay. So I'll see your half past, but I'll say, I got to go at, at a quarter past. How about that? Okay. Perfect. That, that's yeah. the ultimate flex. Um, but, but the, you know, the bottom line is when I get, I get to talk to people like you, I get to talk to the Nobel laureates, I get to, so it's a privilege. And I do find that that um, only gets better, you know, as the more I, I kind of have cultivated a little bit of a, of a reputation for kind of just going after a niche, you know, which is cosmology, which is science. But I, I've, lately started to branch out. I have Neil Ferguson, who's a historian at, at Stanford mm-hmm. coming on Jay Bhattacharya is coming on. He, he does a lot of stuff with, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I'm not afraid to do that. But but on the other hand, um, you know, there is also this kind of niche thing that that is good to, to kind of dial into. Um, I wonder now we have a lot of questions from the audience. And then I have my patented final four questions uh, that mm-hmm, I'm going to mm-hmm. demand responses like a good journalist should. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of yeah, you. Well, we, I yeah. mean, you know, like when you talk to those people that you're going to be, you know, they're fairly, you know, I know who they are. They're controversial. Yeah. Be a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the thing for me is like, and at this conference, it was very surprising to me, Fraser, because, you know, I consider myself a, you know, a practicing atheist, a practicing agnostic, that's a Freudian slip, probably. but uh, in that I go to like a temple like in San Diego downtown, I go to, you know, I, I do things I keep kosher, but like, you know, are there evidence, do, do I ever doubt my faith? Um, and at this conference, there were many, many uh, scientists, professors, very well-known people, some of whom will come on the show at some point. And, uh, and, and, you know, people like uh, Francis Collins wasn't there, but, you know, he's like a very religious person, obviously. Uh, but I wonder, uh, you know, I asked them, like, do you ever doubt your faith? Expecting them to say, uh, and I asked that of the atheists, too. I said, do you ever doubt your atheism? Um, you know, because like we see a baby born like because they'll always say, well, you see a baby born with a deformation and cancer. Like, why would God do that? So that's the classic problem of theodicy. Right. Uh, but is there mm-hmm. anti theodicy? Like you see like a butterfly come out of a chrysalis. Like I once asked like one of these uh, my, my very good friends who's extremely pro-choice. And she uh, she's just so devoutly pro-choice. And I, I respect pro-choice up to a up to a point. We can debate. That's not what this podcast is about, right? But uh, but I was saying, like, um, she told me like one of her kids bought like a butterfly kit where you get these little caterpillars and they're so they're so cool. And then like literally you put them in, they turn into a chrysalis, and then like one day 
they just start to hatch and come out. And I said, you know, I won't use her name. I said to her, you know, like, um, how would you feel? You know, you see this beautiful chrysalis and it emerges and it transforms from this like hairy, squiggly thing, like a snake. And then it starts to fly. And like, what if I came up to it and I just like crushed it like right in front of you? She goes, I would, I would kill you. I would, and I was just like, but like, can you see where some people on the other side have, and she's like scientifically minded. Can you see where they might have? So I love to ask them questions. Is there anything I could do to shake your faith in your position, yeah, to Jay, I'm going to ask him, Jay Bhattacharya, like maybe you were wrong to publish this study in like three one three weeks after. But the thing that is so interesting to me, Fraser, is that they will have these talks. But someone like, you know, I can't imagine like Richard Dawkins, like he would be in welcome at this conference, but I don't know if he would come. And I don't know if he would invite any of them to like his conference. Anyway, you don't have to respond to that because – we have a lot to, to cover still, but, um, but yes, I will, I will, yeah. I will hold their Yeah. Feet. I mean, as, like, not as a journalist, for me, but as a scientist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for me, it's just about evidence. So just like whatever, like, you know, people ask me about UFOs, like, do you believe in UFOs? And I, yeah. like, I don't, I'm, I am unconvinced by the evidence. So, um, have, and if someone says, well, my father saw a UFO, I'm like, I don't find that convincing. Right. Like, I'm sure your father found it convincing and you find it convincing that your father found it convincing, but that is not enough for me to be convinced that your father actually saw an alien spacecraft right. fly down to earth. I can right. imagine a bunch of alternative scenarios. And as long as I can, how do we figure out what's true and what's not true? And, and, and so for all of the, anytime anyone makes a truth claim to me, I have to figure out a method of discerning what's true and what's not true. That's right. And that is, and that is the same technique about everything yeah. is just, and so I, I, like, I think it's really dangerous to say, I disbel I think this thing is wrong. Right. I think it's, it's disingenuous. I think it is, it's not helpful. And, yeah. and, but not I think it's afraid. perfectly acceptable to say, I am unconvinced by the evidence you have presented to me so far about your UFOs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I but I can't wait to be proven wrong. Like, please yeah. show me <laughs> that I'm wrong. Deliver me the evidence. And usually it's just silence. Yeah. Right. Cause they don't have any evidence. So it's fine. Like, but, but you can't, you're not going to guilt me. You're not going to threaten me. You're not going to kowtow me into yeah. believing something that I don't have enough evidence for yet. Right. But I want to keep a dramatically open mind about what's there and what's possible. Yeah, I mean, I've had on uh, been on uh, Jeremy Reese, who's an alien scientist. He's in the chat room. He's he's a good supporter of the show. He's incredibly energetic, very passionate, and you know, he and I had a had a and I give him his due. He had me on his channel. You know, I'm more on the slightly on the skeptical scale, and he was genuine about it and generous about it, uh, gracious, etc. But at the end of the line, I, I have a video on my channel that said, "Astrophysicist professor, I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. I have evidence for gravity, and I think right. that yeah. that's the thing." Yeah, exactly. Do. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a question from Andy Oates, who's a great friend of my show. He's a subscriber to your channel as well. Uh, he and another uh, member in the chat room. One of your uh, best videos, in my humble opinion, is about ion drives. It's one of your most popular videos. Uh, we want to talk about space technology. Andy's asking, will mm -hmm. Artemis take off in November? 
or will it sit oxidizing into 2023? So first of all, what excites you about space technology and the space race that's going on today? Do you think we're going to reach Mars? Uh, First answer about Artemis, sorry, and then will it take off? Okay, yes, I think Artemis will launch in November. I, and in fact, I think it'll launch on the first try. So I think November, was it 13th, 14th? I think it's going to launch. Like it's like, there's not, there's nothing left. Right. The, like, unless the, unless another hurricane bears down on Florida, then it's going to launch. They've, they've looked through all of their fueling problems. They've, they've troubleshot every single thing that's going to make them. And there's a ton of pressure. They've got go fever for sure. And because there's no human beings on board, I think they're going to go, they're going to err on the side of let's just go. So I do think it's going to launch. I think it's going to beat Starship by far. Um, I think Starship is like Musk said it might launch in November. Um, but like you have to multiply Musk time for everything. There's 33 separate Raptor 2 engines strapped together in a configuration that's never been attempted. It feels like there are more tests that they're gonna want to do before they actually let that monster get off the off the the launch pad. I still sort of hold by my completely unscientific prediction that they're not going to launch till March ish. Okay. So, but we'll see if I'm, I can't wait again. I can't wait to be wrong. Like in the perfect world, starship launches and is perfect. And SLS launches and is perfect. And people have a really difficult time figuring out what they're going to do from this point forward. Mm. But to see two super heavy lift rockets take off within a few days of each other would be the greatest thing ever. I'm just <laughs> yeah. not. And what I, about I just am not ultimate, convinced. Uh, Musk's ultimate goal of going tomorrow. I mean, do you feel like that is a legitimate, is there scientific legitimacy, or even sustenance of human life uh on earth which is his primary mission uh what uh, what do you make of that ambition that Musk has? yeah i mean i think i can't wait for there to be a base on the moon i can't wait for there to be a base on a asteroid a base on mars where you've got human beings living there doing scientific research but i don't think it's ever going to be beyond what we have in antarctica mm-hmm. like yeah. Like they, there is a scientific reason to go to these places, if nothing, just to send human beings to other planets, but it is not to try and send a million people to live on, on Mars. Like if we could do our very, very best possible job of, of making Mars, like we terraformed Mars and we grew plants on Mars, it would still suck compared to earth. And, and after a while, that's just got to get exhausting where you're just like, you, you know, what's a place that's like a terraformed Mars? It's Earth. And you were right there all along. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I, so I, I think, I, no, uh, I. Upcoming guest on the show, Lex Friedman. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I told him on his show, you know, I said, you know what happened the day after life is discovered somewhere in the universe, some slime mold on, you know, Vesta. And he said, what? I said, absolutely nothing. Like I could yeah, go out to the Pacific 100%. Ocean, you know, 10 miles uh, away and I could scoop up some life. And and you know what? You're right. Yeah. Antarctica, I've been there twice. I spent a month or more of my life there. You know, uh, the South Pole, you'd have to pay me to go back to. The coast is pretty right. cool. There's penguins yeah, and the there. South- 
Yeah. And the South Pole is a thousand times more habitable than Mars. Like it's a thousand times more pleasurable than Mars. Easily. Okay. Let's take some more questions from, uh, from the audience. Um, so feel free to type in your question underneath, uh, in the live chat. Um, you can also, uh, you know, find more information about Fraser on his channel. I put a link to that there. I'll put links to my appearances on, on universe today with Fraser in the, in the past years. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, was math discovered or invented? That's his Iron Duth Batra. Do you believe math mm. is mathematical um, ideas? Are they discovered or are they invented by humans? I have no opinion. <laughs> okay. I mean, if it was discovered, like, are the math are is one plus one equals two? Is that a thing that exists in the universe, or was it invented by human beings? I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna lean on the side of them being invented mm-hmm. because we do because we do math, and sometimes we do math that doesn't work. But but I think, and you can go back. Like, isn't there like you can go right back and prove that one plus one equals two? So you yeah, it's sort of, about two hundred like pages a, long proof. Yeah, yeah, but it was like a foundational assumption, right? Yeah, but I don't really, I don't really have an opinion either yeah. way. I so yeah. yeah, I'm gonna have some more. I've had a few mathematicians. I've had Stephen Strogatz. I've had Jim Simons. I'm having Ed Frankel, who wrote a wonderful book called Love and Math. He's coming on the podcast in the near future. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um, do you have an but, Do you have an answer for that? Invented, um, discovered. The answer is yes. Uh, okay. Perfect. Okay. Good. Yeah. So yeah, my ambivalence is is right. Okay. Yeah. Because because yeah. there is sort of a purity. Now, what's so interesting to me about this conference, and and that's why I like to go to things that I don't nec- talk to people I don't necessarily agree with, and that's because you know you hear things like there was a eminent science. If I told his name, I mean he probably doesn't care if I told it, but he's at Harvard um, in their molecular biology and math and does all this incredible. And he basically went through methodically this this whole proof that God exists based on math. And mm. I mean, it wasn't like cr- really a crazy crackpot. I mean, Einstein said things, Galileo, Galileo hometown whose hometown we're in, God is a mathematician of the very highest order. Uh, Eugene Wigner, you know, what is the essence to explain the to human beings, the unreasonable effectiveness of math to physics? It's a, it's a puzzle. It's a mystery. Anyway, I want to get more into technology now. Uh, Andy Oates asks, what's your opinion about thorium rocket engines? Or can you give us an update on your ion drive? What do you what excites you about space? Like, besides these ginormous rockets, what other technologies are needed to enable us to go to planets or the solar or stars beyond our solar system? Well, that, I mean, ion drives, this is the idea of of having ionized particles, usually xenon, krypton, and you blast it at the back of your of your rocket using an electric field and you get very high accelerations in return, but it's on a particle by particle level. So the actual force coming out of an ion engine is, is very low, but the efficiency is very high. And, and when you're considering the tyranny of the rocket equation, efficiency is, is the most important thing. So you can accelerate to really high velocities over long periods of time by firing your ion engine. Um, there's a new type of ion engine that's being developed by NASA that's going to see existence in future missions. So there's some more powerful ones out there. And when you connect a fusion reactor to ion engines, you get a pretty great technology stack. You've got really high efficiency, limitless amount of power with ion engines capable of using that power to accelerate your propellant out. I think 
if there's going to be missions going to and from Mars, we're going to see ion engines play a role in that. Mm-hmm. But but I think that the revolution in rocketry right now is what's happening with SpaceX with Starship, the idea of a fully reusable two-stage rocket system. Like, mm-hmm. like if you didn't have to throw your rocket away every single time, right. that you could just um, use the the like just the cost of the fuel each time right. to launch a rocket, you can bring down the cost of launching things by an order or two of, you know, several orders of magnitude, which makes a lot of missions, which seemed impossible in the past, suddenly start to make sense. Right. Which brings launching us propellant to- depots, yep. things like that. So I think it's, it's not going to be complicated. It's going to be really simple. Like mm-hmm. it's, but it is rocket science yeah, building is. the fully reusable two-stage rocket is going to be the is what's going to be exciting which brings us you know full circle to what got you into uh space which was the shuttle missions which were pioneered to bring us to space on a weekly basis or whatever never really came yeah. out um for yeah, a exactly. of reasons we're not going to get into one thing we need to have and that people are curious about in the chat room is um, you know the human being going to Mars? So Martin Rees, when he was on the podcast recently, uh, said, you know, Elon Musk wants to die on Mars, and um, and and Elon, and then he said to Elon, Elon, I hope it's not on impact. But there are these, you know, kind of um, there. And I also asked him, like, how does it feel to be the astronomer royal to the king now? Because he used to joke yeah. that his job was to tell the queen her horoscope. Uh, so you'll hear some of that in a couple of weeks when I process the episode. But anyway. Oh, that's that's amazing. That's so Mars, We might have it. to, like, put people in suspended animation. Like, uh, what was that movie a couple of years ago? So I wonder, you know, can you answer, you know, kind of the human question before we turn to final questions and then wrap up? How are we going to actually physically get a human being two years or, or perhaps longer, maybe much, much longer to go to another star system. How is that possible? Well, I mean, like, like within the solar system flights of two years, you're taking a human being that was evolved under the protective magnetosphere of planet earth and, and our atmosphere. And you're putting them out into the cosmic void. They're going to be getting hit by cosmic rays. They're going to be hit, getting hit by, by radiation from the sun. And they're going to receive a lifetime's dose of radiation in just a few months, the price they will pay is cancer and cardiovascular disease and problems with their eyes. Like they, in the same way that a test pilot takes on the risk of, of dying every time they strap into some new vehicle, uh, they do it as a, as a, as one of the risks of their job. Um, it's sort of like the same thing about a person who's going to climb Mount Everest. Like you send us, you know, that there's a 15% chance you're just going to die when you climb that mountain. And, and that's just, and it's outside of your control. So there is no solution. And like, maybe there'll be some long-term, like in 200 years from now, we'll have technological solutions to solve all these problems. But, but until then we are, it is not a tourist trip to Mars. It is a, potentially suicide mission for a lot of people and almost certain health issues for everybody who attempts this journey and think for a lot of people it's worth it like they're stoked to go to mars and they're willing to pay the price which is that they're going to die young with cancer um and that's the sacrifice that they're willing to make to extend humanity's influence to other places i wouldn't right but they do and I respect them for what they're willing to do. Um, 
And I don't think there's anything more like I, and I think that people just don't appreciate how dangerous it is, how unforgiving that planet is, how awful the journey is going to be and how little reward we're going to have for actually being there. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Fraser, we've reached the end of our regularly scheduled content, but I do <clears throat> always love to ask my guests who honor me by coming on with mm-hmm. uh, with these four questions of fundamental existential reality. Okay, so the first one is, uh, relates to the namesake of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination that I am the uh, associate director of, I have the honor of being the associate director of. And, uh, and it has to do with his famous statement in the very, uh, in the very movie 2001 uh, Space Odyssey, which gave us the name podcast. I don't know if you know that. The podcast comes from the iPod, which came from mm. the word pod bay doors, which I open every podcast with. Uh, and that's the, what Dave says to how, right? Okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. getting around that. Uh, so any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, I want to ask you, what thing have you discovered in your peregrinations around the world of science and space um, that is most impressive, that is most magical, that is most technological, perhaps, um, that you would like to have the humanity have a little bit of swagger in our collective steps about? What is the most impressive, most magical advanced technology? Well, I think, the like, you know, I see so many of these things and they sort of fall out of my brain as soon as I see them. But the thing that I've been mulling around with right now is artificial intelligence content creation generation the how you've got things that are writing words drawing pictures uh it's really unsettling to type in a text description of some scene and have a picture show up in front of you instantaneously and that really feels like it's bordering on magic to me and i understand the underlying technology to some degree uh it's so weird and, and yet it felt like if, if you said, like, when will you be able to say, computer, show me a picture of an astronaut riding a horse. When will that technology exist? A computer will just show you pictures of astronauts riding the horses. I would have thought it would have been 50 years from now. And yet right. here we are. Right. And so to see things fall technologically so quickly, it's just it's stunning to think about the future that we're rushing headlong into across all these fields of artificial intelligence. Yeah. I mean, I think back to my grandmother, you know, grew up in the shtetl of Eastern Poland and, you know, she was riding a horse and pushing a donkey cart and she lived, you know, to see men, grown men twerking on TikTok, And to have that Frazier is, is just so exciting. Okay. Next. That would have been, that would have been my second thing. <laughs> oh, you know, you love it. That's great. Okay. <clears throat> the next thing uh, that I love to ask my guests who honor me, um, actually it has to do with um, not millions of years in the future, but, but maybe uh, 70, 80 years in the future, when you reach the biblical age of 120 years old, what wisdom, mm-hmm. not material, goods. What wisdom do you want to put in what's called your ethical will? In other words, a gathering of, of knowledge, but, but really of wisdom that you can communicate to not just your biological relatives, but your ideological relatives. What would you like to leave for humanity to guide us in the future when you're no longer with us physically? Well, I think, 
you know, the one of the things that got me into space and astronomy in the first place was this, this idea that we may or may not be alone in the universe. And that finding out an answer to that question is one of the most important. I think it's like the most scientific important question we can ask. And, and I would love to know that I helped get an answer to it, mm -hmm. if possible. And not, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm not a scientist. So my job is to communicate, my job is to connect, my job is to, is to help raise awareness that this is a scientific question and that the answers, the search for the answers are fascinating and important. And I think if people can go back and say, Oh, Fraser helped communicate when we thought it was stupid, Fraser helped us realize that it was important. I would feel like it's a life well lived. That's wonderful. Okay. Last two questions. Um, now I want to ask you, uh, also pertinent to Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who said the following, when a distinguished but elderly scientist says that something is possible, they're almost certainly right. But when he says something is impossible, they are very probably wrong. Now I'm not calling you elderly, we're about the same age, but I wanna ask you, Fraser, is there something you've changed your mind on? What have you most recently changed your mind on that maybe you were wrong about in the past? Well, I think the the thing that I've changed from you know, people who are in my audience will know we've talked a bit about that the the reason the worthwhileness of of sending humans to Mars of of us living you know I read the case where I mentioned earlier the case for Mars inspired me yeah. to get into this field and the idea of us colonizing Mars was really exciting to me and I think that now I that is no longer interesting to me mm -hmm. that that the more I learn about our planet, the more I appreciate the, the more I learn about the universe, the more I appreciate the world that we happen to be on. How isn't it isn't it weird that we are perfectly evolved to live on this on this planet? So okay. this is the best place in the universe. Yeah, and take I'll take any aliens on if they if they disagree with me that their <laughs> that their planet is is better, but it's the best place for us. Absolutely. And so it's like you could search your whole life for a better place, and it turns out you were living there all along. Yeah, and don't squander it. And I think that takes us to our final yeah. question, Fraser. <clears throat> now we're going to go backwards in time. No more going forward time traveling. Uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's so-called third law states, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. Now you know where I get the name mm. of the podcast from. I want to ask you, what mysterious aspect of life? As I said, most of my audience is you know, 20 to 50, 60-year-old men. Um, I want to give you uh, get your life advice to your former self. What would you do differently? What moments of great clarity or some inciting incident <clears throat> or something that was formative to you would you go back to, if you like, and give yourself advice to give yourself the confidence to do as you've done and go into the impossible? Advice to your former self. Yeah. I mean, I think I've been really fortunate that I've always been who I am, like as a when I was in high school, I was running role playing games. I was, um, you know, I was the D and D nerd. I was, I was enthusiastic and would never stop talking. And, and that shifted into various interesting careers and stuff. And so I was never 
ashamed to be into the things that I, that I was. And I think that if I could go back and, and talk to younger Fraser, I'd be like, just double down, lean in. It's these things that you love, video games, space are fine and are, you're not alone and, and just do it. And I think that, that for me, you know, be, be, back then you're more classified as a geek, as a nerd, as a, right. as someone who, you know, wasn't cool. And I, it never really bothered me too much, but I think for a lot of people, they, they do, they can't be their authentic self. And I think if the, the sooner you can get into embracing your authentic self, the more fun you're going to have with life. For sure. Absolutely. Fraser, I want to be uh, completely honest. You are a true hero to many of us that are trying to do a very difficult thing, which is to increase science literacy. I think the future of the earth depends on it. Uh, we are always, oh, how do we get more people in STEM? Well, one way is to make it accessible, make it fun, bring yeah. some humor, uh, because humor uh, belies the sense of confidence that I think you really have this unique, as I said, you're unfair advantage, uh, which you exploit in the most benevolent of ways is such a gift. And I want to encourage my, you know, my audience, uh, to definitely subscribe. If you haven't support him on Patreon, this is a very important mission. He employs many, many writers and they have this mission and it's so unified. Um, and one of my favorites, uh, I keep promising to have her on Nancy Atkinson, uh, who wrote 11 years to the moon, I think. And, uh, yeah. and have her on, you have this incredible staff. It costs money to keep that going. So please do support Fraser, subscribe to his channel. <clears throat> and the best thing of all is the, the, you will re reap the benefits of interacting with Fraser. The more you give, the more you'll get Fraser. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Sorry. I kept you so long, but it was too much fun to no problem. Yeah, the timing's good. I got three minutes. Right okay, on. Thanks, friend. Brian. Take care. We'll All be right. Bye. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with me with Dr. Brian Keating. Now, if you want more interviews with Dr. Keating, you should definitely check out his podcast, his YouTube channel. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, he's got a lot of guests. I'm kind of jealous at some of the guests that he has. So definitely check it out. All right. Thanks to everyone for following, listening to the interview. And we'll be back to our regular broadcast next time.